the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Black lives have not been taken seriously as being fully human. Hey guys, you know what? America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. I think the American public has seen quite well that you are biased in this situation and you've not been objective. And that would arguably be the conflict. Well, you know, I haven't been the only decision maker here. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because because we were black. I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, it cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take it seriously. People are working. They're working two and three jobs to put food on the table. In our America, nobody should have to work more than one job to put food on the table and have a roof over their head. Donald Trump in office on trade policy. You know, he reminds me of that that guy in The Wizard of Oz. You know, when you pull back the curtain, it's a really small dude. Somebody sir, sir, I have to me. just a few. Well, you let me qualify. I, if, okay. if I don't qualify, you'll accuse me of lying. So I need to be correct as best I can. I do want you to be honest. And I'm not able to uh, be rushed this fast. It makes me nervous. The reality of it is that we don't have to debate the point, which is that on average women make 80 cents on the dollar. 
to men. If you're talking about African-American women, it's 61 cents. If it's Latinas, it's 53 cents. So there is an obvious issue that we have around not only disparities, but fairness and equal pay for equal work. So let's get beyond that because it's not a debatable point. The question becomes, what are we going to do about it? And I think the goal we would all agree should be that people should be paid equally for equal work. But we haven't yet reached that point. We're going to have to create incentives um, to get there. So what I am proposing is that we shift the burden away from that working woman and instead onto that corporation hmm. to prove that they're paying people equally. Be you run the United States Department of Justice. If in any U.S. attorney's office around the country, the head of that office, when being asked to make a critical decision about, in this case, the person who holds the highest office in the land, and whether or not that person committed a crime, would you accept them recommending a charging decision to you if they had not reviewed the evidence? Well, that's a question for Bob Mueller. He's the U.S. attorney. He's the one who presents the report. But it was you who made the charging decision, sir. You made the decision not to charge the president. No, in a Prost memo and in a declination memo. You said it was your baby. What did you mean by that? It was my my baby to to let, to decide whether or not to disclose it to the public. And whose decision was it? Who had the power to make the decision about whether or not the evidence was sufficient to make a determination of whether there had been an obstruction of justice? Prosecution memos go up. To the supervisor, in this case it was the, you know, the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General, who, who decide on the final decision. And that is based on the memo as presented by the U.S. Attorney's Office. I think you've I've made seen, it clear that of, you've not looked I've at the evidence. We can move on. I think it, you've made it clear, sir, that you've not looked at the evidence, and we can day. move on. On this very day, at this very hour, There is a memorial service to honor the life of George Floyd, who was murdered on a sidewalk by a police officer with a knee on his neck. For eight minutes and 46 seconds, George Floyd pleaded for his life, called for his late mother, and said he could not breathe. The pain experienced not only by that man, that human being, and his family and his children, but the pain of the people of America witnessing what we have witnessed since the founding of this country, which is that the the black lives have not been taken seriously as being fully human and deserving of dignity. And it should not require a maiming or torture in order for us to recognize a lynching when we see it and recognize it by federal law and call it what it is, which is that it is a crime that should be punishable. That was a voice you're going to be hearing a lot of over the next few weeks. Uh, Some sound bites from Senator Kamala Harris, who is Joe Biden's uh, pick. Uh, to join him on the ticket as he is the presumptive nominee by the Democrats for president and Kamala Harris is his pick to be vice president. She'll be speaking Wednesday night at the uh, Democratic National Convention in honor of that selection and uh, efforts by both um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to develop a 
sense of, of team. I think Joe Biden would like to have the kind of relationship, uh, uh, for her to have the kind of relationship with him that he had with Barack Obama. So in honor of that, we're going to have an encore uh, uh, interview coming up uh, in just a moment with Stephen Livingston, the author of Barack and Joe. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the author of Little Demon in the City of Light and Kennedy and King, which was named a New York Times Editor's Choice selection and a Washington Post notable book for 2017. The nonfiction book editor of the Washington Post has lived and worked in Beijing, Hong Kong, New York, Paris, and Washington, and reported and edited for the Wall Street Journal and International Herald Tribune. He has a new book uh, about the partnership between uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden. It's called Barack and Joe, aptly enough, (laughs) The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership. And it uh, comes out this week. Uh, I'm talking about Stephen Levingston. Steve, welcome to the show. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Um, I don't know that that's the longest introduction I've ever given, but... uh, it's it's probably going to make the top ten, um, but let me let me ask this, um, Steve. A lot of people refer to Barack and Joe as as having a bromance. They became very very good friends during their tenure uh, during uh, Barack Obama's administration, um, but it didn't start out that way. They served uh, in the Senate together. They did. They, they first came upon each other in the Senate um, when Barack Obama was just elected. And um, he came in kind of as a superstar, having given a tremendous speech at the Democratic National Convention in 2004, which sort of anointed him as the new face of the Democratic Party. So he was a celebrity, and he came in, and he was young, and he was dynamic, and he was cool. But um, Joe Biden had been in the Senate for about 30 years, or a little more than 30 years, and he was a different kind of character. He was, you know, of the Senate. He, he believed in the hierarchy and the traditions. And here came, here came Barack, I mean, here came Barack Obama, um, who was kind of impatient with everything. He wanted to, to get things moving and, and sort of um, was impatient with the way, the style and the, and the, and the, the, the slowness of the way things moved in, in the Senate. And one of those people who kind of was responsible for the style was um, um, Joe Biden himself, because he was known, as everyone knows, for being kind of long-winded. So they didn't really hit it off too well right at the beginning. Um, and they had to sort of evolve from there, which they did. I mean, they they went down the road together and evolved, began that way, and they, they um, transformed their relationship over time into something that really turned into a profound friendship over the years. And that, that began in the Senate. Um, was there... Uh, was was that evolving friendship interrupted a little in the uh, during the primary campaign for the 2004 election? Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it I would it think. Hadn't, yeah, it hadn't quite evolved yet, shall we say? Um, they, you know, they both were wanted to be um, president in, in 2008. Um, Barack, even though he... Oh, that's right. I went back too far. It was 8 and 12. Yes, yes. They both 
both wanted to, to run. They both ran for president in 2008. Um, you know, Barack, when he came into the Senate, said he was he was not concerned with that. He wasn't going to run. But it, a lot of people were pressuring him, and he wanted to be president for a long time. So, of course, he, he threw his hat in and started going. Well, that, um, that pressure kind of began when he gave uh, the convention speech. Yes. Yeah, immediately um, immediately after that, too, you know, people started uh, saying, your time is coming, it may be here now. And he had to sit back and sort of think a lot about that and say, well, um, do I do it now? Do I grab this moment when I'm hot or do I try to do it later? And, um, you know, in the political world, if you're hot, you're hot now. Um, Bernie Sanders is sort of finding that out this year as opposed to the last time he ran. Um, he was he was really hot last time, and this time it's not so hot. So Obama sort of understood that, the, the, the importance of hotness, and he, he ran with it. And that, you know, a presidential primary campaign isn't the best place to make friends, especially if you're running against another man. So Barack and Joe really, you know, weren't on a path toward friendship at that time. It had to come after um, after um, Joe dropped out. And and how did that um, evolve? Did it evolve because of their relationship in the in the Senate, or um, or did it start after Joe was asked or selected to be on the ticket? Well, I think they both sort of started to see um, virtues in each other. Um, Obama, you know, had had seen Biden perform during the debates during during the primary campaign in 2008, and he was kind of surprised. He thought he would be kind of a bloviator and would be off off um, topic and whatnot. But he was very focused, and he was really considered one of the best debaters. On top of that, um, he knew that Biden had this great long experience in the Senate, which he didn't have. Um, and if you were to become president, you needed somebody who could work with the Senate. Um, Biden was attractive for that reason. Biden also had a lot of foreign affairs experience, and he was considered a bit of an expert, and that was something else that um, um, Obama came up short on. So as they sort of looked at each other, they began to see that there was there was something kind of attractive about the other guy. Biden, um, who was sort of a little hesitant about Obama at the beginning, began to look at him and see that this guy is pretty masterful. He, he knows what he's doing. He's incredibly smart and... Um, and uh, he, he looks like he, he could, really, could really make it. So they gradually came together there until um, you know, Obama decided to uh, try him as a possible running mate. As, as I remember uh, that campaign in 2008, Barack Obama did not do particularly well in debates early on. But his learning curve was really fairly obvious to everybody that was watching. He got better with each debate. That's exactly right. And that's why he was so kind of enamored of, of Biden, because his first debate, Obama's first debate, he was he was pretty bad. He, you know, he was sort of didn't seem to have the energy and the, and the focus. And he, he just didn't come off as well as, as Biden did. So he felt, you know, there was, might be something there to learn um, from the older guy. Was that the uh, the, the campaign where... Uh, Biden was uh, on the debate stage and, and some pundit asked a, a really complicated question with, with a lot of context and stuff, and Joe simply answered with the word no. Yeah, I think, I think that one of those debates was that, you know, they put him up and, and the question I think was, would you be able to, you know, be focused and do all these things? Would you be able to answer things in a very simple, quick sort of a way? 
and everybody thought you know Biden would come back and go into the long elaborate answer and he just said yeah <laughs> gave the one word answer yep. <laughs> which surprised everybody more with journalist and author Stephen Levingston about his book Barack and Joe straight ahead Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com. Call us at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsodent flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later. 
Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. The Tom Summer Program.com. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with journalist and author Stephen Levingston about his book, Barack and Joe, straight ahead. Once the. Were, was their relationship already starting to meld before? Joe Biden was selected to run as uh, Barack Obama's vice presidential candidate, or did that evolve on the campaign trail? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, um, one thing I should mention also, what Biden found so attractive about um, Obama after first being a little hesitant about him when he first came into the Senate was the way he handled that controversy, if you if you recall, about Jeremiah Wright, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who was um, Obama's pastor, and into the campaign, it was I think it was in March before Obama had won the nomination, and he was kind of surging and he was looking good. Um, one of the news channels did an investigative report and found a lot of um, reports and video of Reverend Wright, who was um, Obama's pastor, giving very inflammatory, racially inflammatory um, sermons, and this caused a huge um, outcry and a big controversy. Obama hadn't done anything wrong. He was just associated with this man. So now uh, Obama had to deal with this in some way, and he came at it in a really a brilliant way. He, he just decided, I'm going to have to talk about this. I'm going to come out and give a major speech on race. And he did that at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia, I think it was, and he just aced it. It was an amazing speech where he talked about the history of race in America, and you know, he said you know some of the things he certainly disapproves of in his reverend, but he understands where that's coming from from the black population, and he basically gave a lesson to America on 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 race and racial tolerance and and racial history in America, and. Biden saw that, and he was completely blown away. He told one of his aides, and one of his aides told me about how it, he said, that was really the best speech I think I've ever heard a politician ever give. And this, this aide told me that it was really a click moment for, for Joe Biden in the sense that he now had this newfound respect and admiration for this incredible man who was able to, to, to speak so eloquently on a very delicate subject. And David Axelrod, who was, who was Obama's... Um, advisor, he said that what that speech was, was at a moment when his his campaign was in a great moment of peril, he actually turned it around and turned it into a triumph. And Obama saw that. And so gradually they started to confer a little bit more on the campaign trail. And they started to see what was good about each other until finally Obama um, decided he wanted this man to to be his, his running mate after he got the nomination. Although it... it as I recall, it wasn't quite that that simple. Um, wasn't there a, a, a period of time where people were speculating whether he was going to ask Hillary to be the vice president and Joe to be the secretary of state? There was some talk about that, and, and they, they thought about it. But 
from what I gathered, um, Obama was never terribly serious about having um, Hillary as his as his running mate, because I think, as he put it, there would be three of us in the picture. It would be Obama, Hillary, and Bill Clinton. And he didn't want to have to deal with um, Bill being as partly involved in everything as well. So it was better to have her maybe, you know, working at state and and Joe being his his main guy and um, as the vice president. I saw Bill Clinton speak once, and, and he referred to uh, Hillary's position as Secretary of State as that traveling job. <laughs> well, it was. She certainly was on the road. Um, but with um, but but with Joe, and and I just wanted to make this one comment about the uh, race speech that uh, Barack Obama gave, because uh, as I remember it, he was trying very hard to stay away from that issue as much as possible. And uh, and then he makes this very eloquent speech. I think people started calling him uh, the professor in chief or or something like that. Right. Yeah, that's why I refer to it as sort of like he gave a lesson. He was giving a lesson to America and everybody who was listening that, you know, these are the things we need to understand, you know, about the the racial history in America. And he laid it out really eloquently and and, um, had a lot to say. And, you know, he was a former professor. He used to teach in law school. um, But it, it wasn't professorial. It was more very much on the level. You know, and um, it was it was just so impressive. Now, with with Joe, um, we've talked about him being a little bit long winded, but he's become somewhat known for making gaffes. Did that come with Joe, or did that come with the vice presidency? I think that came with Joe. That's um, <laughs> he's born and bred for gaffing, and. And I think he knows that. And, you know, in some ways, I think it goes back to his childhood. Um, you know, he was a he had a bad stutter when he was a child, and he had to work very hard to overcome it. And, you know, he was a guy who was also very outgoing and gregarious. And so it was kind of ironic that here's a guy who wants to speak so much, but he has this stutter that keeps him from doing it. But he worked so hard to overcome it, he became quite a speaker, and he was he was able to be fairly fluent. But... As I think his mother would say, there was a sort of a little disconnect between his his brain and his mouth sometimes, and things came out wrong. And, you know, he developed this reputation for just being authentic and speaking from the heart because he just wanted to get out what he wanted to get out. And sometimes it came out really great, and other times it came out kind of mixed up, or he chose the wrong words, or he he just didn't get it right. Um, but I think, you know, that was one of the things that Obama, you know, in his wisdom and his and his compassion sort of understood. And he really looked past a lot of the gaffes. He didn't think that the gaffes were that important. And another aide of his, you know, told me that he just he didn't think about them as being important. He kept his eye on the on the long game and he didn't get too caught up in the changing um, news cycle from moment to moment. The, the moment to moment changes were not important. And she told me that it was the same thing with the relationship. He just wanted to keep that relationship solid and firm and not get caught up in the ups and downs of the day-to-day activity. How much do you think this book will uh, inform people considering Joe as a uh, potential president? Yeah, that's a a good question. I um, I mean, I, I have to sort of, you know, 
companion that with the question of, you know, why why this book now? Right, right. Well, I I certainly didn't intend it to be to be like this. And um, to my mind, when I first was thinking of this book and writing this book, and it is a book that is contained in history, a short history ago. It's contained really to the White House years, and it it ends really with just Joe announcing his his candidacy this you know past year in in April. Um, and I don't really get into the politics, and I, I didn't want it, and I don't want it to be a political book. It's really a relationship book. It's about two guys who really created a White House partnership, friendship, relationship that had never existed before in American history. And the, the point of my delving into this was to sort of see how did those dynamics work? How did this come about? What was it about these characters that, that was able to to get over the fact that they were running the world, you know, or running America and for the most powerful nation in the world, and yet were able to go out and have good times together, were laughing and enjoying themselves, and, and just sort of had this real decency with each other. That's something we'd never seen before. And that's how I conceive the book, and that's sort of how it's written. Um, it's not meant to be a political book. It's not meant for people to really look at it in terms of the, of the campaign today. But in terms of the campaign today, I think if people read it, they'll see um, the kind of man that Joe is, and the kind of man that he was as vice president. And they'll also see, I mean, I'm not a Biden partisan. I'm not, you know, I don't have a horse in this in this race of the of the primaries. But they will see that the man, you know, had a lot of on-the-job training, and he was in the room with Obama and watching and learning from Obama and how he um, he ran his, his administration, which was, you know, quite effective. And I want to go back to the, the decision-making for selecting him as the, uh, as the vice presidential candidate, because historically, vice president, uh, the, the, whoever is selected as uh, to to bring up the the ticket is that's usually a decision based on uh, political connections, geography, um, and and very often the the two people, the the president and the vice president, don't have any real love lost between them. Um, was this decision made on what? Joe brought to the ticket in terms of uh, uh, political connections and geography, or was this more personality? You got a fairly young guy on the ticket, one with more experience, one that's, uh, uh, you know, the new kid on the block and, you know, one that's been around for a while. Was it was it more about personality? Well, actually, I think it became about personality. I think you hit on it at the beginning of your question there, that it it really was more of a a political marriage to begin with, as these things usually are. I mean, um, as we were talking about a little earlier, Joe brought a lot to the table for for Obama, the young guy, not a lot of experience. Joe had a lot of experience in the Senate um, with foreign affairs. Um, and there was also the geographic um, thing that you mentioned. He was, you know, strong with the working class, the mid Midwest. Um, he had a lot of those kind of qualities that um, helped the ticket. Um, but what was interesting and why this became such a unique relationship was that once they made that political marriage, it became something a little bit more. Um, you know, as I write about in the book, and people who who follow Biden will know that. You know, there's a term they call um, being Bidened, 
And that is, you know, <laughs> it, it's kind of hard to resist the guy because he's just so gregarious and friendly and he's in your face and he, he gets to know you and he's, he's just, a, he's a really, he, I mean, of all the politicians I've ever covered, he really seems to be a, quite a fine human being, which you don't normally see at that level. And I think Obama got Bidened in a sense and, and became, you know, enamored of the man just as much as Biden was totally admired um, Obama. And so that sort of dynamic played itself out once they got on the campaign trail and once they got in the White House, certainly, and throughout their administration, especially in the later years where, you know, Joe's son, Beau, was ill and, and died. And um, Obama was just a, a really loving friend to, to Joe at that time and was really concerned for him and was offered a, a very big shoulder for him. And, and their wives seemed to get along very well, too. Oh, the, the wives certainly did. You know, they, they've done a lot together on, you know, for military families. They travel together. And, and not only the wives, but the kids, the families, um, you know, Biden's grandkids and Obama's kids, they would have sleepovers together. They would get together for to go out and do stuff. And, I mean, this is why it was sort of an unheard arrangement. And it kind of, in my sense, and especially if you look at it from today's perspective, it gave you sort of a, a feeling of hope and 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 optimism about the way that people should just be with people, you know, and the way that relationships should be. And the president and the vice president really set that model from the top and send that ethical and, and moral sort of principle down to the rest of us on, you know, how we should behave. And that, I think, also is why the relationship was was such a powerful thing for many people in the country who identified with it, because they saw that decency at the top and they felt, oh, that's kind of a good feeling. And it's interesting that you brought up that, that uh, term Biden, um, because in some ways that I was I was going to ask, how Biden didn't become considered because of his experience, his age, the length of time he'd been in office, as uh, and where he was from, an Eastern elite, um, as opposed to this uh, sort of Midwest working class hero persona that he has. But hasn't that that down home quality? kind of played as as old school and worked against joe in the campaign this year a little bit this year well you know it's really difficult this, this i mean you've been you've been watching some of the coverage yeah. and, and some of the accusations of him being too familiar and too close to people and right. i i remember growing up of course i'm in my 60s now and and that was kind of normal for politicians to put a hand on, on your shoulder or, you know, to try and be, you know, very close and, and warm and friendly, uh, like an uncle, like Uncle Joe. Exactly. And yeah. and I just wonder if uh, in, in today's uh, politic, if it isn't uh, a little bit old school. That's exactly the word I was thinking as you were as you were saying that it is old school, and that's that's the kind of guy he is. He's an old school politician, um, and in this particular era, you know that that resonates in a way that hasn't resonated in the past. Maybe where we have a, a real strong, you know, um, 
sort of progressive democratic wing that sort of wants to abandon the old school and and Joe is right in their crosshairs for that reason and even you know Elizabeth Warren who is you know she's no spring chicken she's like 70 years old but she's also feeling she's sort of project, projecting a new school kind of a way of of behaving um, and Joe is of that old school, and sometimes some of his, his gaffes on the campaign trail this year have shown that. You know, he, he says things that people don't understand because they are so of another era. Um, so this is a really complicated time for him, and it, I just, you know, it's impossible to know how this will all play out because um, it seems every day brings some new twist or turn, but um, he has a lot of hurdles, um, that's for sure. You've been quoting uh, aides a lot. Were you able to get access to Barack and Joe while working on this book? No. Um, they, I guess the timing just wasn't right for them on this. Um, they helped me, though, get in touch with people around them. I've talked to a lot of people in their inner circles. Um, and I've talked to people outside those circles who are able to sort of reflect on um, the relationship and how what it means for us in America and, and all of that. Um, and I basically have done just a really deep dive on all of the material and information that I could find out there, and you know, from the media, from books and memoirs, and and video, and all of their speeches and and conversations that have been made available. This is an interesting book because you know my last two books were more historic, where you know the characters are all dead, and we've had we have like archives, and we have you know lots of rich material, and and people who who knew those people are willing to speak more freely, whereas Barack and Joe are still, as we know, very much contemporary. They haven't drifted off into history yet, so it makes it a little bit harder to um, to get to, you know, the deeper, deeper levels of, of all of this. Um, but in, in a sense, I, I got the sense, and I was able to, through all of that research and through my own interpretation, I think, deliver really the, the first kind of comprehensive look at what this relationship is. And I know down the road, once they move into history, There'll be other people that maybe come back and, and broaden on it. Maybe I'll come back and be able to broaden on it. Um, once there are archives, once there are people who are further away from them and who are willing to talk a little bit more freely. But right now, this is the portrait, I think, that we have. And, and of course, it would be difficult uh, to access Joe while he's in a presidential campaign. Yeah. Um, and and I don't know why it would be difficult to, to get with Barack. But when you talk about moving into history is where are things going on with uh, Obama's presidential uh, library you know I'm not really sure I, I haven't been following that too much but I you know, I didn't mean to put you on the spot about that but I was thinking yeah. as you were talking about having access to a lot of papers and a lot of records you know when doing these histories oh yeah um, yeah. that I, I was wondering if any of those kinds of papers were made available to you. And and then it got me thinking about, gosh, shouldn't we be hearing about an Obama library soon? Yeah. <laughs> no, they've been talking about it. And I think, I mean, I, the last I heard it, they were planning, and I think there was going to be something built in Chicago or in that, in the, that area. I was um, thinking Chicago, too. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure exactly, but... Um, you know, and that's the kind of thing. You do need that kind of repository. You need a place where 
you know, people can go to do deep research. And, you know, he's still a very new and young president, so we don't we don't really have all of that material just yet. I mean, that was what made the, doing the Kennedy and King book so fun and, and easy was that, you know, there are just mountains and mountains of archival information and and thousands of oral histories that people have done about that administration. And, you know, and I just spent hours and hours and hours going through that stuff. And there are little nuggets you find. You think everybody's been over all that stuff a million times, but there are things that are still there that people haven't seen. Well, it's it's nice with uh, with those two because there's there's also video. Yes, yes. As right. opposed to doing, you know, uh, Adams and Jefferson or something. <laughs> right, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, well, this this is fascinating, and I can't wait to read the book. I apologize that I I, I don't have it yet, but uh, it's it's just coming out this week, and. Um, Steve, I always want to have guests um, share with listeners where they can find out more, not just about the book, Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership, but your other books and and future projects. Do you have a website? Um, Well, I'm mostly using a Facebook author page now that people can look at. I do do some updating on there. I'm, I'm putting, you know, reviews and what other people are saying about the book and stuff that's going on with it so you can just find that under my name Stephen Levingston it's an author page on Facebook and I also have a Twitter account um, where I also do some updating and that's at Steve Levingston not Stephen it's just at Steve Levingston um, people can go there It'd be great and it's uh, it's Stephen Levingston on Facebook and yes right they wouldn't let me do the whole Stephen Levingston for some reason on Twitter it was too long <laughs> <laughs> too many characters yeah um, yeah, it's like trying to put out a book in, what, 145 characters? Um, the, uh, do you know what, uh, what comes next? I mean, obviously you'll be pushing this book for a little while, but, uh, have you already, uh, fleshed out your next project? No, I haven't. I'm always thinking and trying to figure out what I do next, but there's just, um, you know, when you when you start working on a book, it, it has to. It takes a lot of time to sort of get to the right project and make sure because you're going to spend a lot of time on it. So I'm still kind of sorting through things and not sure just yet. More with journalist and author Stephen Levingston about his book Barack and Joe. <laughs>
This is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. They say singing can help you remember things, so here's some tips for parents out there during these tough times. Number one. Make sure your kids wash their hands for 20 seconds after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside. Two. Virtual playdates, social and physical distancing can help save lives. Three. Tell them they're safe and show your love and pride. Yes, we'll get through this together. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com. Call us at at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and Start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. 
alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with journalist and author Stephen Levingston about his book, Barack and Joe, straight ahead. What what was it about these two that made you feel like you wanted to write this book? Well, that's, that's interesting because it's sort of, I didn't realize this, but if you look back at the Kennedy and King book, which was the one previous to this, and this one, they're both about men in very high positions and their relationships. And to me, that's the fascinating quality of what history is about. History doesn't just occur. History is made by the people who are in positions of power working together or working opposite each other, or somehow creating history. It's, it's created by the men and women who, who have the power to, to create history. Um, so that's what I did with Kennedy and King. Kennedy and King was a look at the relationship between um, those two men and their impact on the civil rights movement and how King um, influenced, Martin, uh, influenced um, John F. Kennedy to be more open to um, civil rights which he did. It was kind of an interesting um, thing. I hadn't known how, how powerful his, his sway was on Kennedy. And then I, and I thought of Barack and Joe, and I thought, well, here's an interesting end piece to almost the Kennedy and King story, because now we have um, what Kennedy and King did made possible for this relationship between Barack and Joe. We have now the African-American, who is the man in the, in the supreme position of power, where Kennedy was before, and King was trying to influence him. And we have, we have Barack Obama, who was the man at the top of the ticket, and he's being helped and influenced in some ways by, um, by Joe Biden. So it's, and that's how the history was made um, in that relationship. So it's, it's that kind of a thing. I just got interested in the relationships between people at the top. And, and interesting that, that both of these projects are interracial relationships. Yeah, I, I never thought of doing it that way. But then when I finished this one, I thought, whoa, yes, that's true. That's, that's how it came. It's come out. And, it's, it's, and I did see the arc between the two of them. Steve, it's, it's almost, you know, a black guy and a white guy walk into a bar and uh, Steve writes a book. <laughs> no. there, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Well, Steve, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, best of luck with the book. I, I'm looking forward to it um, very much, and I, I apologize I haven't read it before we had a chance to talk, but uh, um, I certainly will be soon, and people are saying great things about it. I appreciate that, and I appreciate the time. It was great talking with you. All right. Take care. Take care. That was uh, Stephen Levingston. Steve is the author of Little Demon in the City of Light and, of course, as we talked about, Kennedy and King, which was named a New York Times Editor's Choice Selection and a Washington Post notable book in uh, 2017. 
He was a nonfiction book editor of the Washington Post. He has lived and worked in Beijing, Hong Kong, New York, Paris, and Washington, and reported and edited for the Wall Street Journal and International Herald Tribune. The new book is Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
Music by Mindy Love and Two-Tone Corduroy. They're going to be our uh, musical guests tomorrow. New music from Two-Tone Corduroy. And uh, also we'll have uh, Mindy Love joining us by phone during the 11 o'clock hour. Great show in store tomorrow, but good show today. want to say thanks uh, again, even though it was an encore uh, interview to Stephen Livingston for sharing information about his book, Barack and Joe. And then earlier, Snack Hacks from uh, Bonnie Tob Dix. And then uh, we started out with a very interesting conversation with our uh, Supreme Court guru, Brendan Beery. And if you happen to hear that interview, I was teasing him a little bit because he just, about being an international uh, commentator on uh, all things Supreme Court, because he just recently did a similar interview to the ones he does with me from time to time with a uh, South Korean media outlet. And he posted something on his Facebook about you know, finally having gone international. So I was teasing him about that a little bit, if you caught that. <clears throat> and speaking of catching things, if you ever miss uh, an interview or uh, something that you uh, like from the Tom Sumner program, you can always explore our website, go to the archives, and you can look back through uh, past episodes, which are saved in the archives hour by hour. So if you know a date and an hour, that somebody was on, you can look that up, or you can just scan through and uh, see what you want to find. Um, also, I uh, wanted to mention that I, I did have some sound bites uh, in the first part of this last hour of Kamala Harris. It was uh, kind of a audio montage of uh, things that she has said in debates and in Senate hearings and speeches and so on. And we're going to be hearing a lot of her voice over the next few weeks as she is uh, Joe Biden's pick to uh, be his running mate as he continues his run for the White House. Anyway, there's smoke and George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head down the hall to the uh, living room and abandon the bunker, as it were. Excuse me. But... uh, Still one more day before the weekend. Hard to tell the weekends from the regular days, but uh, we'll be back tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Good night, everybody. The Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.